Hello, welcome to The Recapitals. I'm Juliette Littman. I'm the head of production here at The Ringer and also the host of Bachelor Party and also a massive TV fan. In fact, we all are at The Ringer, which is why this week we have released The Ringer's list of the 100 best TV episodes of the century. That's right. Every show since the year 2000 was eligible. One entry per show, and we made a list. You can check it out at besttv.theringer.com. The Recapitals is going over a few of our favorites. Yesterday, we recapped Lost. Today, this episode you're listening to recaps Mad Men, the episode The Suitcase, and we've got one more coming. It's the episode from The Office that we selected. If you want to know which episodes these are, go to besttv.theringer.com and check out theringer.com for all of our TV content. We have Allison Herman on Recap Culture. We got Shea Serrano coming on Dwight Schrute. We have Victor Luckerson on Were People Happy on The Office? And so much more. There's Kate Nibbs on Tom Cruise's Oprah Moment. And we've got Alyssa Bereznak on One to Kill Off a TV Character. Please don't miss it. And I hope you enjoy the recapitals. Here we have Sean Fennessy, Amanda Dobbins, Andy Greenwald talking about The Suitcase. Again, that's besttv.theringer.com. Hello and welcome to The Recapables, a podcast about TV shows, typically recent TV shows, but not today. Today is a podcast about an older TV show because we are celebrating the very best episodes of the 21st century. Joining me today to talk about really one of the best episodes ever and an episode that ranks very high on our list is Ringer Culture Editor Amanda Dobbins. Hello. And Andy Greenwald, co-host of The Watch, mm-hmm. creator of Briar Patch. That's nice. And other things that are nice. I thought you were going to say Ringer Barnacle. <laughs> <laughs> no, our pal and uh, and podcaster. I'm basically here like Danny is in Sterling Cooper, Draper Price. Like I had an idea once and one of you guys drunkenly stole it. And now I just have to hang around the here office. Here for life. Yeah. Okay. So guys, we're here to talk about Mad Men. All three of us really like Mad Men. Yeah. And the episode we're discussing is The Suitcase. The Suitcase was season four, episode seven. It was written by Matthew Weiner, creator of the show, directed by Jennifer Getzinger. It aired on September 5th, 2010. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happens in this episode, and then we're going to talk about it. How does that sound? Sounds wonderful. Okay. We are podcasting. It's May 25th, 1965, the day of the historic Muhammad Ali-Sunny Liston rematch. The staff of Sterling Cooper Draper Price ad agency is off to watch the fight, while Peggy Olsen has a birthday date with her beau, Mark, who unbeknownst to her has invited her family to dinner. But after a pitch for Samsonite goes badly, Don Draper demands Peggy stay at the office hours after, and the two have a long, drunken, shockingly confessional, and emotional series of conversations about work and life. Peggy speaks about her secret pregnancy, Don talks about his parents, they quarrel over credit for the award-winning glow coat campaign, and ultimately Don learns that his friend, Anna, and confidant has died of cancer. That's essentially the whole episode, mm-hmm. right? It's a, it's well, a very co- contained episode of the Mad Men. Mostly. For me, this has always been the story of a pregnant housewife who loves blood sport. <laughs> that's really— <laughs> Shout out to Trudy. That's the yes. A story for me. But, you know, you this is your this is your thing. You can yeah, run mean, with it. There, there are nice cameos from a lot of the supporting players, but yeah. far less than we usually get. This is as close to a bottle episode as Mad Men ever got, and Mad Men was never a very exterior show because they shot in L.A. But that said, this is both a bottle episode and a bottle of— was it Cuddy Sark? What, what are they putting back? I was trying to figure that out. I'm not actually sure it, what they're drinking there. It is a drunken bottle episode of truly, Mad Men. Truly. I don't know, Amanda, what, what did, give me some first impressions of the suitcase. You're a serious fan. I So for me, it's always been, we had these discussions about what should the Mad Men episode be on this list. And I think we all agreed immediately it was the suitcase. I, there wasn't a lot of discussion. There was, there was a time we spent a while negotiating the rules of the list, and there was a time where there were going to be a few. 
But I think the suitcase was always number one. And it was interesting in doing the research and going back, kind of looking at the various lists and the coverage at the finale. And even at the time, we were all just agreed. It was an immediate all-time episode. And I even remember watching it in the moment in 2010. You don't get... I guess you do now, you know, when there's like a climactic Game of Thrones battle or there's like a season finale, you know, okay, like I'm watching the historic episode of television. But in 2010, we were kind of watching week to week, checking in, seeing what's happening. Is like Creepy Glenn going to come back? Like what's the, (laughs) you know, what's going on with our friends? And this just immediately presented itself as a different level uh, of television and something that we would be talking about for a long time. And I I think it really holds up. That was pleasing. I hadn't seen it in a few years. And it's still just the writing especially is kind of it is possibly the it's probably the best written episode of television of this century. No question. I think so, too. I absolutely agree. I think this is a total masterpiece. It's the best episode of one of the arguably three best television shows of all time. I think it's the best show of the century. And I think it's an exemplar of TV as I like to think of it. So maybe that's self-serving. But I think this show, this episode triumphs in the macro and in the micro. And by that, I mean, you could show this episode of television to someone who had never seen Mad Men, and I think they could relish it like a short story. It also plays brilliantly, brilliantly as a chapter in a longer novel that Matthew Weiner was writing about these characters. The joy of this episode comes from the dialogue, the construction. I mean, just on a construction level, this is a dazzling episode. It feels like it's two hours long. It's 46 minutes. By the time you reach the end of their long night together, that opening scene with the boxing and 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 um, uh, all of the things that happen at the very beginning in the bathroom with Trudy and, and the cross with Megan, who is not yet Megan Draper, it feels like it was quite some time ago. But the the true deep pleasure of this episode comes from having sunk in with these characters, having lived with them, from understanding every cross look between Elizabeth Moss and John Hamm is built on the history that they have made as actors, as characters. The first time they speak about what we all know they both know about, uh, the pregnancy, it's it, it's a triumph. I mean, I, of, of the way people began talking about TV in the century, um, the, sort of the David Simon model that, you know, it just flows, it's all serialized, but also um, what I think of as the greatest aspect of TV. This this can stand alone. Yeah, there's a lot of things that I like about it. The things that stuck out to me as I was rewatching it were, first and foremost, the fact that, like you say, it is built, it's almost like a movie or a short story in that it is kind of building to a main event, much like the episode is sort of building to the main event of this fight, yeah. mm-hmm. which actually isn't really the main event. You know, obviously okay. in the fight, Ali knocks Liston out in the first round and we get this iconic photo of him standing over Liston triumphant. And, you know, Don and Peggy have this iconic knockdown, drag out confrontation about halfway through the episode. But that's not really the point of the episode. It's the most memeable thing. It's probably the thing Amanda and I say to each other the most when discussing employees of the ringer. Which we should come back to. Which we will definitely (laughs) discuss at length. And I I, I like that aspect of it formally. There's something structural there that Mm -hmm. is really smart. But it also is just, it's very intuitive about the way that people are bonded together who spend a lot of time together and who are forced to, to spend a lot of time together. And there is this unique, not father-daughter, not brother-sister relationship between Don and Peggy that the show is essentially orbiting around in every episode. And this is the most precise evocation of that relationship, I think. Right. And it's also the transition point between them. It is kind of when Don is – Don has been crumbling a bit and Peggy has been ascending and they kind of meet at this moment. And then for the rest of the series, which this is almost literally the halfway point of yes. the – you know, it's – the middle episode of the fourth season, there are seven total. Um, so structurally, again, there's just a lot of re- a precision here that 
I admire. But they meet in this moment, and then from this point on, Peggy will... Things will get a bit better for her, and no spoilers, but Don falls apart. Let me just jump in. This is the midpoint of the series. This is the 46th episode. There were 92. Yeah. Somehow... He made this beautiful symmetry, which make which makes sense considering there are stories about Matthew Weiner like agonizing over the ashtrays in every shot. Right. But the fact that he was able to design something like this in a medium as notoriously mm-hmm. fickle as television is a testament to something genius and mania. I think it's it seems in retrospect almost certainly by design because he has every arc planned out, and you know he writes these tight. This is a short story or a one act play. Right. Everything has its place. And it, it seems very clear that he thinks, okay, these are my two main characters, and and this is when this is when things tip. It's amazing in retrospect. We're going to get into some categories, but before yeah. we do that, I want to share some data points about this episode with you guys, okay? Great. So this had 2.17 million viewers, which is not a lot, but I think was considered a lot for a Mad Men episode. Yes. Um, that, that's live viewers. Mm-hmm. Live viewers, yes. Mad Men sort of vacillated between 1 and 2 million for the bulk of its run. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of fairly well seen. I think this was kind of that, the— that, That's also the average income of its viewers, yeah. so that's why it stayed <laughs> on here for seven years. That's a great point. Um Writing for the AV Club, Todd Vanderwerf called it one of the best episodes the show has ever done. There are probably a hundred other quotes like that. A- upon release, it was immediately identified as a masterpiece, which is interesting because, you know, the point you made, Amanda, about the big battle scene or the penultimate episode has become the episode where we all kind of get ready and psyched up for some masterful moment. There was really no telling that this would have been the one that would have jumped out at us, so that's fun. Um, Elizabeth Moss chose The Suitcase as her favorite episode of Mad Men. Of it, she said, it's the greatest material I've ever had the privilege of acting. John Hamm said, I've never worked on something and felt the way I felt after we shot the episode in season four called The Suitcase. That one, I can't even put it into words. Makes sense. They both submitted it as their uh, acting reel for the mm-hmm. Emmys. Matthew Weiner compared Peggy standing at Sterling Cooper Draper Price to his own standing while working under David Chase on The Sopranos. So this is the most interesting yes. sideline piece of information to me because, and we'll talk a little bit about the long-term complications of Matthew Weiner's creativity and his role as the leader of Mad Men. But in particular, you, you you kind of forget now that Matthew Weiner came in to Mad Men as an underling, you know, as a staff writer on a series of successful television shows. And this was his his great, iconic, great man project. And he's still, like, working out some grudges. And one of the, th- the things that makes the show so complicated and ultimately so brilliant is that we watch this episode now, and as Sean, you alluded to, we're going to discuss the meta commentary about this episode momentarily. But it's very easy to assume that that Don Draper is the surrogate for the great man, the auteur behind the scenes. During the making of the show, Weiner always claimed that he related to Peggy. I'm sure he did. (laughs) And and, and, and that that's how he felt. And, you know, one of the things that unites this show with The Sopranos is not just that Weiner worked on both, um, but that both David Chase and Matthew Weiner, the geniuses who created these shows, have chips on their shoulders the size of the Chrysler building about opportunities missed, about mistreatment, about not ever being able to realize their potential. I mean, David Chase made The Sopranos, one of the greatest shows of all time, the show that is responsible for kicking off this generation of greatness that we have on television, and he still kind of wishes he had made a movie. It kills him that he made TV. And that and, and that may not make sense to us as TV fans and appreciator of their work, but that friction fuels this stuff on a very deep level. It's a very interesting thing. You know, we've already talked a little bit. The first category is why this episode. And we've talked a little bit already about why. I don't know if there's anything else we specifically want to say about what makes this better than some others. I'll, I'll, I'll kick some some other contenders to you guys. You know, Amanda, you and I have discussed this a bit. I think the number one contender that we didn't go with was Shut the Door, Have a Seat, which mm-hmm. is, of course, the kickstarting of Sterling Cooper Draper Price, where 
Lane Price fires all the all the members of the the, the previous ad agency, and they start their own business. Um, we were just discussing meditations in an emergency, mm-hmm. which is a very memorable, iconic episode. We had discussed faraway places quite a bit, mm-hmm. and I will say I watched faraway places again recently, and it felt like quite ghoulish and bad, which is not something I think I would say about many Mad Men episodes. Yeah, um, particularly the the sort of showdown between Don and Megan, where he like tackles her in the spare bedroom. Yeah, um, it's a mess. It's it's re- it's really messy at that point, and not quite as precise as the. It's things we've seen before in a less revelatory way right? at that point in the show. Um, The Wheel, of course, the season one season finale, which is almost cliche at this point. But I I certainly remember at the time watching the episode and being like, we are reaching nirvana of television. I have not been so excited about a TV show in my life. I don't know. What are some other suggestions you guys might have? I'd throw Tomorrowland up there. That was the season finale of season four. I watched that yesterday. I I was watching season four to be able to write about the suitcase and to do this podcast. And I had to take a walk after Tomorrowland. And in in a good way, it was effective. And I knew, you know... You almost knew what was happening when you were watching it mm-hmm. at the time, but I certainly knew it yesterday. Tomorrowland and is when he engages, uh, proposes to Megan. Yeah, yeah, they go to Disneyland, yeah, and, and, and then and he proposes to Megan, and it's just – it was it was very tough in the way that it should be. It's effective, effective television, and I was still really upset. There's a moment in that episode. I mean, I, I consider the show to be a total masterpiece, partly because the the brilliance and artistry with which it communicated very simple, basic emotional ideas and truths in a way that feels like it just feels deeply profound to watch it. It does not feel like you're being lectured to. It sneaks up on you. And the moment in Tomorrowland that's underappreciated, I think, is when um, Bobby Draper spills the milkshake and Megan doesn't make a big deal about it. And that's the moment he decides to marry her. Mm-hmm. Um we all should be with people who don't freak out over spilling milkshakes. I feel like that's kind of a profound thing from the show. That but is I that the about. lesson, though? That's, yeah. Like, no. I feel like that's the problem, and no, that's the that's, genius of the show. You know, we want to be hopeful when Don proposes, just like we want to we? be— Well, I think, yeah. I think that there is a complication, right, with Don, because obviously you noted that Weiner does, says he mm-hmm. identifies with Peggy, but in some ways he probably aspires to some aspects of Don, the sort of dashing creativity. Yeah, most aspects. And Don— I think we want good things for him, even though we know he leads a bad life and has bad makes a lot of bad choices. But he still is the centerpiece of the show. He still is the person we spend the most time with mm-hmm. on the show in aggregate. And so inevitably when he proposes to a woman, just like when he has this showdown with Peggy, right. even though Peggy is completely in the right and is saying a series of things that are uh, like that you imagine most people who have had a job want to say at some point to their boss, it's still kind of like, Don, there's some native truth telling going on with 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 his his speech that I don't know I don't know about if I'm rooting for but I I sense like some I don't know some loyalty to well I think that's the brilliance of the show right in a nutshell I mean when I speak about the milkshake thing did he make a good life choice in that episode as we found out no he did not but we have spent enough time with his character and he's been treated with enough uh, artistic care that we understand why he did it and I feel like that's one of the most I think that we understand why he did it. And I, the part of the show that I struggle with a little bit, and the part of the show that is how much of it is aspirational and how much of it is character study is, are we meant to be happy for him or to recoil? And yesterday I was absolutely recoiling. I had forgotten that um, the John Hamm performance when they announced their engagement to to the partners in the office, he's it's, he's mm-hmm. manic, grinning like a, mm-hmm. it's a completely different and really, really unnerving and excellent performance. Um, and which makes me think the show has a little bit more 
knowledge of Mm -hmm. the bad path that he's on, which again kind of comes back to this moment of the suitcases, the tipping point between between the two of them. Not that not that Don was on a great, great course ahead of time. In fact, he was just a raging alcoholic, like throughout the suitcase, but that's when he really begins to he somehow begins to totally lose control of Mm -hmm. the situation. He has that moment of revelation and then he's like, wow, I don't want to deal with the reality. I'm going to go back to literal Disneyland. The metaphors are sometimes quite obvious in retrospect Mm -hmm. on this show. I'll I'll provide a manic revelation of my own. I wrote down last night that this is the quintessential Mad Men episode because it encapsulates the feelings of people who for whom work is life, identity, and purpose. And obviously maybe unhealthily identify with that somewhat. Is there, are there other big thematic ideas that this episode gets across that make it so worthy of this conversation? I think the idea of being known, who you allow to see you, um, who can see you, how it feels to be seen. And obviously Don's breakdown throughout the episode and Peggy's ultimate comment of that's not true. Someone else does know you and we know this to be true. And I get chills just thinking about mm-hmm. that scene because it's earned. Um, we talk a lot about how not just how well-written the show is, but just how written it is. And that is a simple line that is delivered perfectly and, and, and with, you know, there's no affectation. It, it lands. Um, but so we get, we pay a lot of attention to, to Don with that idea, but really this, one of the, the key moments for me is when Peggy realizes that her boyfriend has done something for himself and not for her. Uh, and the strength of realizing that moment, you know, when she, when he's, I think many of us can relate to a situation where we've done something for someone else and it doesn't work out. And there's that feeling of, I was doing something for you. How could you do this to me? Um, the show, Poor Mark Kearney. The, the show surgically dissects that moment and makes us understand how that feels for everyone involved, even the roommate, by the way. It just shouts to Cassie, <laughs> the roommate. Um, Peggy's journey in the, in the episode is just as profound as, as Don's. I love that moment in particular where she knows she has to stay and she begins to take her coat off in her office and then puts it back on. And that is a, I, I don't know, for probably at least Amanda and I who've worked at yeah. magazines, you've worked in magazines too, Andy, like yeah. that feeling of like, I close the page, I'm done, I can go home. And then someone says like, can you come into my office for a minute? And it's 930 and you're like, why am I still here? I really don't want to do this. I don't yet have the equity to yell at someone to say I'm going home. Um, that was a, that's such a uniquely profound thing, and obviously we know that she's still going to get stuck even if she keeps her coat on. Right. But there's so many little touches like that too that so tell she, a big story. She chooses to get stuck. Is to- the other totally, because <clears throat> she stands there. There is that amazing moment when she's standing at the elevator, and she could get on the elevator. There is literally nothing stopping her but her own pathological commitment to work, which you know is again that is how that is what brings don and peggy together also but the the theme the thing that really stood out to me and it's building on Andy's idea of getting through to someone is the idea of and this has a little bit to do with kind of the contained nature of the episode but that a connection can be brief and still meaningful and lasting like this episode is about a window opening for you know basically a night and they have those moments and then um, they wake up the next morning and there is, they hold hands and they each can acknowledge that, okay, we had this thing and mm-hmm. we're kind of sound in what we mean to each other for without saying anything, thank the Lord, because that would be far too sentimental, which is, again, why I like this show. But then they move on, then it goes back to normal. And I think this idea that just because something is short doesn't mean that um, you haven't connected with someone is really powerful and kind of plays off all of the other relationships that Don 
Dan's impulse is to hold on to that connection with someone for as long as possible and, in fact, to propose to them after going to Disneyland. So I think it's a it's a fascinating bit of insight. I agree. I think the show is, if nothing else, it is um, a show about uh, control freaks having emotional growth and or trying to. And I can't imagine why I relate to this show. <laughs> I, 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 you know, and, and, and again, this is another one of the things that I just think is so perfect and beautiful about the show. I alluded to it before. They filmed the show in L.A., so there are basically no exteriors. Um, mm. That makes sense for this show. In the, in the world that the show is presenting to us, where outside is crazy and makes no sense, and there are episodes where there are snipers or Cuban Missile Crisis or just all the tumult that we associate mm-hmm. retroactively with this, these decades, inside this office, they can, they're captains of their own ship. Uh, even if part of, even if their ship at that moment is being, you know, yelled at or, or limited or, 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 or whatever by the other people in the Navy. Uh, can you help me with this metaphor? The yes. point being. In the, like the, like the great it's village like, people song. It's like the Navy. <laughs> in the Navy. Let me speak from my own deep experience in our nation's armed forces. Um, th- this is the place where life makes sense for them. And in this episode, they both lose things much more profound for Don than Peggy in this moment. But they acknowledge something, which is that they would rather be in this place with each other. Um, there's an ease that they have with each other. If you think about Peggy getting annoyed with her mother or getting annoyed with Mark, they feel like eruptions. Like she's not supposed to do this. She's supposed to be doing something else. In this episode, they have a titanic collision, she mm-hmm. and Don. And then a minute later, there's audio of, a, of a, a Roger Sterling's biogra- autobiography where we learn that um, that a, another member of the senior member of the firm, Bert Cooper, has uh, – lost his Cleos, so to speak. Yes, and, uh, castration by ad. They, there is an intimacy that I think we associate potentially with family. Like only with your family right. can you yell and then hug, you know, within the same conversation. That's not often true, always true, let's say. And certainly for the family lives seen on the show, but in the office it's possible. And as blinkered and weird as that is, it's kind of optimistic for a brief moment in this episode. It's hopeful. There's a different tone in this episode, even when they're screaming at each other, that in the first climactic, you didn't say thank you. There's something warmer and more open. It's like these two people are on a level and really comfortable with each other. And it is intimate in a way that um, certainly the rest of the show is not. And even at the office, to an extent, they're all kind of morose walking around. Partitioned. You know, one-linering each other. And it, when I was rewatching, it just struck me how comfortable Peggy or Elizabeth Moss's Peggy is at just like yelling right back at Don, which you don't see as much throughout the episode. But it is. It's that specific sense of intimacy that they're able to create for this episode. When she says, I was your secretary. Yeah. And of course, I know when your birthday is. <laughs> um, these are the this is the episode where they got to say the things they hadn't said. Exactly. I think there's also one specific aspect of it that we probably overlook because of the frequency with which it happens on the show, which is that. Don is exceptionally drunk in this episode. It's wild. Abnormally drunk and has started drinking early in the day. He gets into work at 11.30 a.m., essentially scolds his employees for his own lateness, and basically begins drinking. And obviously it gets very messy towards the end of the episode and leads to fisticuffs with Doug Phillips, yada, yada, yada. But I, I, I suspect that so much of this vulnerability and emotionalism coming from him is is born of just being plastered. And it's not pretty. Which, no. which no. you know, kudos to everyone involved. I mean, 
John Hamm looks terrible in this episode. We, I think there was a lot of commentary about it in the season. I mean, I think he starts swimming in the next episode, right? When he's trying to yeah. fix himself a little bit. Yeah. But that stain a, on his shirt is like right. stigmata or something. His face is quite red. It's, it's puffy. It's gnarly. But they went for it, which which is impressive. I, th- I think there's one other major aspect of the episode that we'd be remiss not to, not to, to bring up, which is this episode of the show. The whole show was like this, but this episode is fucking funny. Very. It oh, is yeah. so funny. I mean, obviously, one of the things that made Mad Men great was that for all of its emotional rigor and period, uh, period accuracy and and the great characters and the great dramas, that it was always, always hilarious. And, and Matt Weiner came up and probably resented coming up, but he worked on shows like Becker. I mean, he has a sitcom background, and he never shied away from that in his writing. But uh, the scene with Trudy in Bloodsport, Duck Phillips entirely through this, Roger's lines, you know, coming from when he's calling from the bar next to Keene's Steakhouse. Waving, can you see me? Outside can you of the see me? Great stuff. It's so... I wouldn't be good company anyway. That's never bothered me before. <laughs> it's just, it's it's next level stuff that, that elevates all of it. Let's talk about iconic or memorable moments then, since we're starting to talk about quotes too. And I think that with this show, there are as many quotes that are memorable moments as there are moments themselves. So... Let's let's start by unpacking that's what the money's for. It's your job. I give you money, you give me ideas. And you never say thank you. That's what the money is for. You're young, you will get your recognition. And honestly, it is absolutely ridiculous to be two years into your career and counting your ideas. Now, I want to actually try to dig into this because I had a debate in my home about this last night. And oh, I want boy. to get a sense of what you guys think this is actually oh, sorry, about. Do we have a call in the other yeah. line? Is it Sean's <laughs> wife calling in? I think we do. Let's go live on air. Oh, this could boy. have been with anyone. Yeah. It doesn't have to be with my wife. Um, you know, I think that it's obviously a very – it's a sort of an operatic scene for a show that doesn't have a lot of opera. Yeah. And it gets very loud and it gets very intense. But it's a little hard to know, quote unquote, who's right here. And what it's like to actually have a job where you're meant to do things and not get credit. And then with the expectation that somewhere along the line, that credit will come. Now, every line of business is different, but advertising is sort of a creative art in a similar way to the creative arts that that we're working in. And I feel like I have empathy for both characters. And when I first saw it, I probably had more empathy for Don because I was dumber and didn't really understand the world. But I also have a lot more management experience now. Right. So I also have a a unique perspective on what Don is trying to say to Peggy and what Peggy is trying to say to Don, which is be civil, be a decent person. You don't have to treat me like garbage just because you give me money. And he's saying, sure, but one one day you'll get the chance to do this to someone else. And won't that be rewarding? And that's a that's a vicious cycle, obviously. I I realized that I was, in fact, 26, as uh, Peggy was when this episode aired and when I watched it. Uh, So just horrifying. And I am sure that I identified with Peggy in the moment. The genius of the show is that it can make even me identify with Don from time to time. But I'm sure that I did at the time and think that she was right. And it's funny. I was having a conversation in my own home. And my husband who watched this with me was like, oh, yeah, Peggy's right. And I don't think that it is that clear cut. And I also have some management experience to go with it at this point, which is, you know, we should talk about it. We do... I've never actually said this to anyone, to a Peggy in my life, but we do talk about it among managers. We, you know, make jokes about it. I see it on the internet a lot in the same way. It is probably the most single iconic line from the show. Yeah, I think so. And it is useful after the fact to remind people that's that's how jobs work. Deal with it. Right. Um, and it's okay. I think that a, a 
per, a, a bad person in many ways yeah. is the person saying it. Like it doesn't necessarily negate the point, nor does it negate anything that Peggy is trying to say, which is completely reasonable. Yeah, I think for me, the key line that's repeated at the end of the episode is, well, how is that TV? How does that play on TV? And Peggy gets a chance to say that to Don when Don has his The yeah. Champ ad idea at the end. Um, fundamentally, I think they're both right, which makes it a good argument. Um, what they're arguing about is decency and being human, which is this, the central theme of the show. The last right. episode was called Person to Person. Um, Sean, you're talking about how this is familiar to people in creative fields. This argument is television writing. There is no shading about this. I mean, I'm sure it's advertising too, but one million percent, this is the argument of what it is to make television. Because as Don says, uh, the best idea wins. I pay people to come up with ideas and then I take the best one and I elevate it and that's my job. That is how TV writing works in the 21st century, where there's a writer's room of talented people who all have ambition and ideas of their own and points of view on how it should be. And then those ideas, are those people receive money to come to an office and share their best ideas and who gets credit for what is very, very, very murky. And it always is. Um, and this scene is particularly resonant mm -hmm. um, because generally, I mean, it's, it should be assumed, even if not everyone knows this, that whoever is the showrunner of a show, sometimes the creator, sometimes not, has his or her hands on everything and is rewriting everything, no matter who gets credit for the episode. Um, if you look at a show like Community, that was on at the same time as Mad Men. Um, Dan Harmon is recognized as the person from whose brain this, this show spilled. I believe he has something like two writing credits across five or six seasons. That's because he did all the rewriting in quiet and made sure that whoever was assigned the script got it. Now, I'm not saying he's some exemplar of humanity or anything. I don't even know the guy. Matthew Weiner chose a different tack. He, I believe, had an informal policy that if he touched more than 50% of an episode, he would take 50% of the credit. So that's why predominantly episodes of Mad Men are either written by Matthew Weiner or written by a staff writer, co-producer, whatever, and Matthew Weiner. This may have been technically accurate and appropriate because, my God, did he write every word of this and he's great at it, but it's a little rinky-dink, at least according to the point of view of the Peggy's who worked for him, right? Because not only was he taking credit away from them, he was also taking money away from them because it splits the script fee. And as the creator of the show, he was already getting more money. So this is a huge roiling conversation that was happening behind the scenes yeah. and around the scenes of Mad Men that there's no way of sugarcoating the fact that he went right at it in this scene, right? I mean, it's another testament to the genius of this episode that it works completely well if you know nothing about this. Right. But boy, is there an added level if you factor it all in. It's kind of exhausting and pretty annoying to make the, like— great man novelist comparison, mm -hmm. but it is so true with everything that Matthew Weiner does. He is so clearly aping the Updike, Philip Roth, John Cheever. Like th that style of writing is so evidently influential on the work that he's doing, but also the way that all of those writers would always take these actual moments in their lives, refract them 12%, and then mm -hmm. just put them in a book. And then all the people <laughs> in their lives would be like, yo, what the fuck? <laughs> that was a conversation yeah. we had. Like we've <laughs> talked about this. And... It's so interesting. I mean, that's really insightful what you just said about the actual industry of television and, and that business that goes into creating stuff. And the fact that he's putting this there, I mean, imagine walking into the writer's room after an episode like this, after you get the script for an episode like this and just being like, I guess I'm the punk, you know, like not only am I the Peggy, but I'm the punk. Right. And I don't know, that's, that's feels risky in a creative environment. It's true, though. I think the lesson of the episode is that that's not what the money's for. And like the, the, this argument is about why do you go to work? And both of these people go to work because they want to find themselves and they are in this moment finding each other. And it's the only way they can exist as people. They have 
terrible personal lives. They have no idea how to connect to their families, friends. Like, Peggy literally can't force herself to leave the office. It's the only place that either of them make any sense. And so they're having this fight. And it is funny. That's become the iconic line. And it's true. It's like a good way to think about the world. But um, that's that's not that's not what the money's for. The That's not where credit comes from to either of these people. The credit and the sense of existence and validation is really, really the only reason they go to work. Should we bring in the other meta aspect of this episode, I feel appropriate to do so. Please do. Uh, another thing to consider when when rewatching this episode is the fact that this was in season four. Um, this is coming on the heels of a controversy that occurred when Matthew Weiner um, won an Emmy for the episode that Sean mentioned earlier, Meditations on an Emergency. Uh, it was the season finale of season two, I believe, that won the Emmy for Best Writing and Drama at the, uh, that year. The Emmy was shared between the credited writers, Matthew Weiner and Cater Gordon. Cater Gordon is a young woman who began her career in Hollywood as Matthew Weiner's personal assistant, was promoted to the writer's room assistant, and then promoted to staff writer, which is the lowest title on the rung of writer. Um, you know, as many showrunners do, he assigned scripts. She got a script that year, which is remarkable for someone on a show such as this with a title such as that she had. Either he had always intended to co-write it with her or this was a situation like I was mentioning before where he put his hands on more than half of it and so they shared credit. There is a uncomfortable, infamous image of that Emmys of them kind of fighting over who's holding the Emmy, of her giving the speech over him. Um, She was let go from the show at the conclusion of season three, which was in pre-production or production when the Emmys happened. Uh, And then all of a sudden the next season, there's this show about uh, Don Draper's personal assistant secretary who is promoted and then promoted again, asking for credit for something that he says he's at the top of the call sheet, the top of his name's on the door. He deserves credit for it. So there is, like you were saying, Sean, he's talking about this stuff. He is modeling his career as a writer on these novelists. He's always talking about what's coming into his brain, what's coming into his life, and what's coming out of it. The situation was already fraught and complex, um, and it became more so a year ago when Cater Gordon, um, who does not have, I believe, many, if any, credits in television since. I believe zero. um, Spoke, I I kind of informally, right, in an interview that was not necessarily meant to break news, uh, accusing Matthew Weiner of inappropriate behavior in the workplace around the time that they worked together, and that that was the source of the friction or the source of why of her departure from the show. Um, this was, I don't know if it was, it was both buoyed by the Me Too movement when it was happening, because this was happening last fall, and then more or less swept away. Uh, there was, this was the lone accusation against him. People defended him. People questioned him. Um, he remains at the helm of an Amazon show that is due to premiere at some point in the next, the Romanoffs, the next few months. Um, I don't know what more there is to say about it other than the facts or the facts as they've been reported by the two sides of the issue. It's a dicey thing and it's a complicated thing Mm -hmm. to celebrate a show like this and a creator like this under those circumstances in this environment. I will say rewatching the show certainly was at the forefront of my mind because it can't help but be. And there is this conversation between um, Don and Peggy and maybe we can use this to shift back a little bit to some of the moments. But this is it's very relevant to this conversation, which is they are in a bar listening to the fight on the radio. And they are having a conversation about Peggy's pregnancy and the fact that Donna is one of the only people who really knows about this Mm -hmm. and the insinuation that Peggy got the job because she slept with Don. Mm -hmm. And there's all of this stuff that well predates um, 
the comments that Cater Gordon made that almost seems to be like getting out in front of this in some way to be saying that like, I didn't sleep with you. I was not sexually interested in you. The fact that your mother thinks that is preposterous and I feel bad about it. All of this like latent but pointed subtext. That's true. I, You know, I see that scene from the other not particularly easier perspective, which is that is all initiated by Peggy. That is actually, that's not initiated by Don. It's Peggy saying, um, everyone thinks that we slept together. And it's Peggy kind of being like, I, she says that line, I guess all your secret- other secretaries were more attractive or something to that effect. But right. it's very clear that she's aware that Don sleeps around and is sleeping with everybody but her and is feeling a little bit of, uh, she's feeling insecure about that, which is also compounded by seeing Trudy in the bathroom and Trudy has that immortal line, don't worry, 26 is still very young. Savage. Woo. And wow. Megan floating around and in and out. like the, and, and then Duck as well. And, and that. Yes. So it's it's certainly acknowledging all of those things head on. I have was kind of working through my emotions of that idea of Peggy feeling insecure and and basically expressing that Peggy wishes that Don had shown that interest in her that he showed in other people and that she needs that to feel validated. And on the one hand, I'm like, oh, that's, you know, that's not very feminism in 2018, but it's also an actually very human and honest emotion. And I think it is good writing. It makes sense. You can, in that context, understand why she is, and especially in that workplace, understand that she's feeling the way that it is. I, it's complicated when you square it with the origins or the the parallel storyline. And it's complicated that it's in Peggy's voice. It, it's all very complicated. Yeah. And, and I think that um, much like Sabbath's theater or the rabbit books or something, this episode serves as the most spirited, robust, and optimistic defense of a worldview um, that is completely controlled by the author. What we see in this episode is a world in which the office is a place where traditional rules do not apply of propriety, of behavior, of language. You can fight. You can be friends. You can throw up in front of each other. You can do just about anything. Mm -hmm. But somehow it's more pure because of that, that these people can be their best selves only in the office and their worst selves in the office. And somehow the best work comes from that. There are threads of what Matthew Weiner's defenders and he himself have said about what happened, which is that, you know, he never, there was nothing physical. Maybe he said things, but the whole point of a writer's room is you're poking at the psyche and you have to be free to say these things. That's what this episode represents, good or ill. That's what it is. There's a very famous, not so famous, but a very notable line when Don is rationalizing some of his immoral behavior when they're having that conversation. And he says, people do things, right? which is mm. such an unwriterly but perfect real-life sentence. Mm. And I think we're in a we're, we're really on the electrical fence of conflating real life with the characters mm. and what these people are yeah. saying. And I don't want it to be mistaken that there is an indication that, that, is, that there is a one-to-one aspect to this. But man, it really, does fe- it really does feel like that Philip Roth thing where people in his life are like, I cannot believe you made art out of this. And... It's just so notable because it's such a hot episode in that way. It's such a dynamic and emotional exchange between these two characters who we really come to care about. So, you know, it makes for a rich conversation. There are other aspects of it, though, that are just equally rich and entertaining and probably, like, much less complicated. Um, 
every single thing that happens around Samsonite in this episode <laughs> is very stupid and, and entertaining. Yeah. Um, there's it's, one moment in particular where Peggy's trying to get out of the office and she's presenting an idea to Don. And she says, we thought that Samsonite is this very rare element, this mythical substance, the hardest on earth. And we see an adventurer <laughs> leaping through a cave. And Don says, is this substance much like bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, that's like the flip side of this very fraught and, and complex conversation we're having is, as you said before, this is like the funniest show. This is routinely the funniest show. The whole—just think about the detail that went into the choreography of the Joe Namath pitch that they do in the Which, beginning. for the record, they timed it perfectly. Great delivery by Peggy. They're all great at this. And yes. It's just—that's a throw—essentially, it could be a throwaway moment in an episode that very soon becomes about something else. Um Mentioning Joe Namath reminds me to flag one other aspect of the episode that really ties into Amanda. Your point about this being the midpoint and someone on the the down elevator, and as yeah. John, as Don Draper says, the, what is he? The elevator is like a rocket. Right before he throws up, it, he was going up, but in fact, he was going down. The generational um, shift in this episode that Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali is is mouthy. You know that he can't. He, there's no way he would have won legitimately. Joe Namath's never won a pro game. The girls just like him because he's handsome. Um, what a bad and weak sports fan Don Draper is. He could never work at the ringer. He has no sense of <laughs> Don foresight. Bad, bad takes. He doesn't see that Ali is coming as this iconic figure. He doesn't see that Joe Namath is about to take over the AFL and then the NFL. Like, he doesn't sense oh, yeah. he's old. what's coming. He's that's, old. Yeah, that's he's old. The point. Which, which is ironic because in the beginning, he seems young. Though yeah, by the end, he's the one advocating for the Samsonite campaign with the iconic image. He and, knows. And that's the thing. He's cynical. Yeah. You know, he knows he what it. works. Yeah. Right. And that is so, that's so revelatory. Uh, like, I, I I love all of the sports aspects of this show. There's a lot of really sad Mets and Jets notes throughout <laughs> Mad Men, so I really identify with it. But um, you're right. He, he totally takes yeah. that, that iconic image of listing on the ground, and he finds a way to make it about a suitcase advertisement. Right. The other, speaking about the Samsonite stuff, I noticed watch, re-watching this episode— they really do show the work in this episode and the process of yeah. coming up with these campaigns. In other episodes, you know, it's like it's Don in a dark room and then suddenly like the Greek word for nostalgia. And it just, it comes from the ether. He's like a he's a advertising genius. And this shows and it makes sense because it's an episode about the process of work and what they get from it. But they really do take you through all those bad ideas. That's not the only – the bullshit is not the only bad idea that Peggy comes up with. Mm -hmm. There's the whole conversation about the elephant and maybe we need the elephants when they're standing on the – when they're sitting on the couch. Um, the show doesn't always do that. And it, it was rewarding to kind of – to see them screw up at it. Imagine if I came into the office one day and I just turned to anyone and I said – Name TK. I'm glad that this is an environment in where you feel free to fail. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's accurate to 1960s management, but if it is, that's, that's horrifying. There's also one other TV just behind the scenes note is that there are definitely two different schools of showrunner. One who believes that you should have a work day and then the work day should end and people should have families. And then there's the showrunner who believes you stay until the work is done. Um, what kind will you be? I, I don't. I want to go home. I mean, you can quote me on this now, but I, but I also am a believer that there's only a finite amount of work that can be done in any day, and you can try to do it in eight hours, or you could just try and squeeze it out of 16 hours, but I know what would be preferable. But, but th this is also a comment on that. I mean, they're just getting drunk at a certain point, but yet they're still hanging around as if they're working. Let's, um, let's start moving through a few more categories. Yeah. I think there's probably one other 
native idea we'll have to talk about, which is Anna and the ghost and all of that aspect of the show, which yes. I think is probably a little bit more complicated. But we'll we'll get to near the end and we can talk about it. Who won the episode? This is kind of a silly question, but because I think we're, we're making cases for Peggy and Don here. Um, Duck Phillips did not win. No. Uh, I don't know. Just quickly, Amanda, who, who do you think won? I was going back and forth, and I think it's ultimately Don. Even though this is kind of the transitional moment and he gets to and, – and he completely falls apart at this point. It's a really, really tough road that ends with him proposing to Megan with Anna's – dead Anna's engagement ring. So that's tough. But I think at the end – he gets this moment of emotional release, which is like, quote, good for him. And that's kind of – that's bad TV watching if you're imposing – morals or expectations on someone but i think that character wise that breakdown buys him the goodwill of peggy and all of us and enables the show to go on for much longer than than it otherwise would because you kind of finally do see behind the mask of don draper which you don't we don't really get that often and then he comes up with the ad in the end he is as you noted cynical and he is he makes a gesture to Peggy of maybe not friendship, but camaraderie, but it, it's still Don Draper's show at the very end of it. And there, there is something dispiriting about that last scene when he's got the ads and he's cleaned up and the mask is back up and it's Don Draper as we always knew him mm-hmm. again. And you're kind of bummed out because as a human being with feelings, you want him to to follow his emotional breakthrough into like a happier land, but he's not going to. People don't really change. No, people don't change. And he can get away with that and keep going. So I kind of think the show's winner is Peggy. I think this episode is still done. I think that's very well articulated. And I wasn't sure I agreed, but now I agree. I I, I think that um, knowing where the show is going with the sense of hindsight of the entire series, Peggy wins um, Mm -hmm. because she is Although it was hard to see when you're in the weeds, she was always on a path towards winning. But if you look at this episode just as an individual episode in the moment, I think that's right. It felt like a profound turning point for Don. He he he's revealed something about Dick Whitman to someone else in the office. He's gone. He's experienced this loss. He's had this long dark night of the soul. Earlier in the episode, Peggy says, "How long are you going to go on like this? This feels like maybe this is how long it was going to be." The last line of "Leave the door open." is very beautiful and optimistic and profound. And it was before the show got bogged down, not just in later seasons, but in its creator's central struggle, which was also David Chase's, which Sean just said, people don't change. How do you make a television show, a television show is an engine of change and of plot about stasis. And Mad Men struggled with that in later seasons. There was an entire season, I think season six, that I wrote about for Grantland that I think the artistic purpose of the season was to show how things don't change, but that was a slog to get through at times because the idea outstripped the art. You know, we can have a whole other conversation at some point about the nature of TV, just recycling ideas. We would then see Don go on the wagon, off the wagon, in the office, out of the office, and it would start to feel more repetitive. But in this moment, probably the peak season of the show, certainly the peak episode of the show, it felt like there were still breakthroughs to make, and this felt like a profound one. I agree with both of you guys. You're so smart. Um, <laughs> what did you I notice? I feel free to fail here, though, on this <laughs> podcast. I want to be clear. <laughs> no, this is a safe space. What did you notice on the rewatch that you missed before? I wanted to use this as an opportunity to talk about Anna. Um, 
I noticed Anna holding a Samsonite suitcase as a ghostly yes. vision, which had not occurred to me before and is oddly on the nose, even though I missed it in the five times I'd seen this episode before. So on the subject of Don's vision of the deceased Anna Draper, Weiner said at the time of the release of the show, once the suitcase was in Anna's hands, which was the last thing that was added to the script, you realize that it's probably in Don's mind because what is on his mind is his job. It's so symbolic. Every single person has heard some version of this story. When someone important has died, they have had a sense of premonition or visitation. Now, I don't know about the last part. Um, I'm not the most spiritually minded person in the world, nor the most ghostly minded. <laughs> but I do really identify with that awkward conflation of your work with your emotional state, you know, where you're just like, for whatever reason, in order to both confront and evade the feelings that you have about something, you go towards the thing that can just occupy your time. And so it's, there's something kind of sick about Don seeing Anna holding the suitcase. You know, I think at first when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is that sentimentality that you were saying, right. Amanda, that is often so disgusting, but it's not that. It actually reveals even more damage in, in Don's right. DNA. I mean, I just found it to be a bit too literal. And I, I do kind of find sometimes the show, especially on a rewatch, will hit you over the head with it. But it's like Anna literally holding his baggage. Like, I get it. Okay. Yep. Um, I, I think the idea of conflating work and other emotional stresses makes a lot of sense. You know, like you have a stress team where suddenly someone from work is like taking your college exam for you. And you're like, oh, I don't know. You, the brain does do that. So I get it. I think my larger... And this may be too much of a bomb to uh, detonate here, but I just never really liked the Anna character. I didn't think it was a fully developed part of the show. It didn't, it was an easy way to give him some sentimentality, some emotional connection without ever really earning it. And then I think it, the way she just floats in and out is of a piece with that kind of half-baked character development for me. I don't argue with that. I think the show struggled, especially when it turned to flashbacks in later seasons. Um, the Dick Whitman stuff was brilliant and essential for the creation of Don Draper, but didn't play as well when, when he went back to that well. For me, I think that moment is noteworthy because the show didn't often traffic in spirituality or supernatural. Um, so it's noteworthy that he chose to do that moment. For me, Watching it on the rewatch, it was callback to one of the first things Don says, which is women don't buy suitcases, um, which is sort of a throwaway sexism. You could, you know, much like the throwaway anti-Semitism early in the episode. It's just like, well, it's a it's a period marker of where they are. Lots and, of crypto racism but, and, 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 and racism yeah. too. But it but it also suggests uh, shouts to Ida Blankenship. Um, but there's something deeper there that I think is kind of beautiful, like a lot of Weiner's writing, where it's not exactly literal. You could try to diagram something about women not buying suitcases where Don's saying, well, do women not have agency to leave? Do women not make their own plans in life? He determines it. He decides. And yet, in that moment, he's reminded that he basically boxed up his emotional being and gave it to this other woman. Does it become kind of a crushingly literal image? Yes. But I'll also say that there was probably the longest I went without watching this episode was, I don't know, the at some point, there was probably two years where I hadn't watched or thought about this episode. And in my mind, it was called The Suitcase only because of that image. I completely forgot the Samsonite runner that was the defining story of the thing. So I guess it worked. It's specifically a thing that, and I hate to keep harping on this, but it's true, that if I think if you read an, a novel or a short story, you, this spectral vision of a person that someone was having, you're in the life of the mind there. So sure. it's much easier to accept it. But when you actually see the Ghostbusters version of Anna, you're right. kind of like, come on, this is so it. silly. Yeah. Um, the, the show triumphed over its minuscule budget time and time again and actually turned it into a strength often. I mean, if you look at the set, 
it it it's rattling. I mean, the show had right. a very low budget, but it made it work because of the stylized the lighting and all the choices they made. Sometimes, sometimes the seams showed. Yeah, and it could be stagey at times. You know, there were moments I thought specifically when, we, when I was rewatching with my wife last night. We were talking about how when Roger kind of bursts into Don's office and tries to convince him to join um, the sober crew from Pond's mm-hmm. hand cream, face cream, cold, cold, cream. cold cream, yeah, cold cream Thank for your you. face. Yes, we're here with. What does Doug say? Tampex, Peggy. It's the whole. Yeah. So, <laughs> so much conversation about sort of women's products yeah. by men who don't know what they're talking about, both on this podcast and on That's the so show, true. Mad Men. Yeah. Um, but when Roger Burson, there is something almost like um, Neil Simon play about that right. that exchange and the way yeah. that they're shot and the way that, you know, the cheapness of the set that you're talking about. It's very interesting. Is there anything else that jumped out at you uh, re-watching it that maybe you hadn't picked up on before or since seemed more pronounced? Um, I just wanted to, to note, I mean, Elizabeth Moss's performance in this episode is astonishing. Yet I think this is the height of John Hamm's performance, which was one of the great performances on TV. But she is, to my mind, the great television actor of the century across everything that she's done. And this episode is a Don episode in the sense that Don is sort of the the son that she's orbiting around throughout mm-hmm. and responding to. But on rewatch, all of the things that I praise her for in later performances, the thing that I, I, I'm out on Handmaid's Tale, but I think she remains the greatest special effect, her her reactions, her emotion, the truth of her emotional reactions that play on her face in real time, I randomly paused it to get up and get a drink during the bar scene where I think he says, why do you even care what I think? And the moment I paused on was her with this face that was half smile, half gratitude, half flirtatious, half surprised. It's just incredibly electric and alive. And I think for all the credit she's gotten for the show, I don't think she gets enough. I also wanted to note that I love the Trudy scene dearly and their cross in the bathroom. I I think Alison Brie is on that level, one of the greatest television performers we have, particularly at this moment in Glow, and to see them share the screen together in that moment was was a retroactive thrill. And my joke here is that she was coming off the top rope well before Glow. There it is. She's um, <laughs> really just funny in every episode that she has. Um, anything else for you, Amanda? To build on Andy's point, I think Elizabeth Moss is astounding in this. And her range in this episode, the things that she gets to do and they both get to do, which I, you know, I mentioned, you you don't really see people screaming like this on this show at each other. There's not, there's a level of energy on this episode that is not always on other episodes of Mad Men because it's, it's, it's moodier and it's a show about the inner self, et cetera. And it's really exciting to watch. I had forgotten that it's just, it's, it's fun. It's as well as being emotional Mm -hmm. and, symbolic and all of the important things that Mad Men is, it, it is really, really um, dynamic. Here are the last two categories. I feel like they fit together. We've addressed this somewhat, but I figure we should circle back to them. So one, what doesn't play anymore in the year 2018? I'm not sure that that is the most relevant question because it's a period piece, but what was surprisingly prescient about the episode is the eighth category. You know, we talked about the Cater Gordon situation, and I think that there is a lot of writing into the future going on here. But are there other aspects of the show that don't work as well or that feel wrong or maybe just feel expired given how much television we've had in the last seven or eight years? I, I would say, actually, it feels old only in the sense that I miss it desperately. The style of television show that this is, which is it's extremely writerly, it's extremely mm-hmm. interior, it's extremely emotional, it has a mastery of, uh, of of tone and um, feeling and vibe 
that is, you know, could be suffocating almost at times. And living as we do in a world where shows have to make their mark much sooner, much be much flashier, be tied to pre-existing IP or whatever, and competing in real time against the constantly streaming legacy of Mad Men and The Sopranos and The Walking Dead and the Marvel movies, something this precise, this delicate, this insightful feels um, like a, a fossil. It feels much, much older in a way than it is. And um, I mourn that. I, I watched this episode again, and it made me re remember how much I missed this show. There was an intoxicating feeling at the beginning of every episode where we had no idea what was going to happen in the next hour. No idea. You, you know, a month would have passed in the office. The entire um, aesthetic of the show could change week to week. Uh, you were mentioning episodes that were our favorite. I was going to mention Signal 30, which is the very strange driving class episode in season five. That was the season when Weiner was basically just dunking on people, being like, I'm going to go through my chapbook of favorite films of the 60s and just do tributes to them. Very moody, uh, very Antonioni. Yeah. Your, your yeah. mileage on that may vary, right. but I, I there was a, a feeling of surprise and um, the exhilaration that I missed. And it was it was there in this. I mean, I can't believe how fast and fun it was to watch an episode like this. Usually when we talk about the important episodes of shows, if we're talking about like a Game of Thrones episode, which mm -hmm. I don't, I'll recognize that the, um, you know, the Red Wedding episode is incredible. I don't want to watch it again. Right. <laughs> or, or an episode like Ozymandias, which is right up there probably in the greatest episodes list that you guys did and on my own list. It's wrenching in a different way. This feels like a journey that um, gives us the long night and the morning. It feels like a more complete journey, and it's utterly unique for that reason. Amanda, what about you? Anything prescient or that sticks with you as you think about the show? It was interesting. So I, as I said, I watched the whole fourth season, and yesterday I was finishing a bit of it, and I— Creepy Glenn showed up and there was like a whole scene with Creepy Glenn and I was kind of, I was pretty annoyed because I didn't care. I didn't care about Creepy Glenn. That didn't work for me. But Creepy Glenn is not on the suitcase. But I shared those feelings about Creepy Glenn with our friend Chris Ryan. And Chris Ryan made a very smart point that I have felt when watching a lot of the episodes in this package, which was TV used to be so much. There was so many plot lines and there were so many characters and you were kind of... You had to care about the weird neighbor <laughs> down the street's kid from three seasons ago. And, mm -hmm. and that would take up some of your time week to week. And that's fine. And that's good. And, and TV was great. But the suitcase gets rid a lot of a lot of those distractions in a way that TV has kind of headed that in that direction since. It is for better and often for worse, but really focused on the actual thing as opposed to the week-to-week lived-in circumstances of a, of a world. And you get some benefits from that, and you also lose a lot from that. But I do think the suitcase makes a lot of sense on TV right now, even though it is in many ways really writer-driven and older, and you can see the seams. It just, it feels, it, you know, it feels like a huge episode. Even in the moment, it felt like a really big deal. And that that is kind of how we watch TV now. So, This, too, has felt like a huge episode of The Recapables. Uh, Andy and Amanda, thank you for doing this. Thank you for chatting so openly and sincerely about such a great episode of TV. But that's what the money's for, right? Truly. When do I get that? <laughs> Our theme song was made by our friends at songfinch.com. Check out Songfinch to turn your stories, memories, and feelings into a one-of-a-kind song by professional musicians. It makes the perfect gift for any occasion. 
songfinch.com. 